welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. On today's episode of Plenary Session, you're in for a bonus episode. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Arjun Gupta, who is a second-year medical oncology fellow at the Johns Hopkins University and a prior guest of this podcast, Plenary Session. Listeners will know Dr. Gupta from his prior discussion of magic mouthwash, which was a discussion that I got a lot of emails about. People really loved that because they love to see somebody actually talking about some of the supportive care of oncology that we so often take for granted. But today, Dr. Gupta is on the line via Skype to discuss a study that just came out today in JAMA Oncology. It's entitled Use of Bone-Modifying Agents Among Medicare Beneficiaries with Multiple Myeloma. Dr. Gupta is the first author, and the last author is Dr. Martin Macri. Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Fantastic to be back, Vinay. Thank you. So this is an interesting paper. This is a really nice piece of work, and I want to let you tell listeners what it is, why it's important, and what you found. Just as background, so patients with multiple myeloma are very prone to get bone disease. This could be lytic bone lesions or osteopenia, uh, which necessitates the use of bone-modifying agents. Traditionally, we've used bisphosphonates, such as zoledronic acid and pamidronate, for this indication. Uh, These patients are also prone to have kidney dysfunction, which is perhaps one of the most common complications of myeloma. Mm -hmm. And the use of bisphosphonates in patients with uh, kidney dysfunction may sometimes become hard um, and lead to increased risk of complications. And so there's this thought that we need an alternative agent in in these patients who are unable to tolerate bisphosphonates or perhaps have skeletal-related events through bisphosphonate Mm -hmm. therapy. Um, In January of 2018, the FDA approved denosumab as an alternative agent to bisphosphonates in patients with myeloma. And our study looked at a before-after comparison of the use of denosumab uh, based on this FDA approval. So we looked at all Medicare beneficiaries with myeloma, approximately 15,000 patients or so, uh, in the year 2017, which was before FDA approval or the pre-approval period, and looked at the next 15 months, which was the post-approval period, and looked at the percentage or the proportion of patients who were receiving denosumab as the as the bone specific agent, mm-hmm. and that's what this paper really talks about. I see. So let me ask you a few questions. Uh, one, what is the difference in price between a bisphosphonate like Zometa 
and uh, a rank ligand inhibitor like uh, like denosumab? Uh, so cost estimates for zoledronic acid are something like $50 to $70 a dose. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just the pharmaceutical drug cost, whereas denosumab can cost upwards of $2,000. So there's an approximately 30 to 50 times uh, increase uh, in the price associated with use of denosumab per dose. I see. But soon you're going to tell us it's 30 to 50 times better. We're going to come back to this. 30 to 50 times as much in price. Okay, good. That's good to know. The next thing to know is that... Uh, one is administered intravenously, zolindronic acid. The other is administered potentially subcutaneously. One thing to point out is that both are administered through reimbursement through Medicare Part B, uh, as well as uh, in the infusion suite or in the, in the provider's office. And as such, both would be subject to billing practices that would reimburse providers with roughly a 4.5 percentage markup of the acquisition price of the drug. So it would be fair to say that if I was a doctor running a practice giving Zometa, I would make a tiny fraction of the amount of money I would make if I was giving denosumab to all the patients because I'm receiving a percent markup of actual wholesale price. Fair to say. Correct. Okay. So so this is what you knew going into this. You knew uh, zolindronic acid pomidronate, very robust evidence-based studies showing the importance in uh, multiple myeloma, particularly patients who are prone to skeletal-related events. Um Denosumab, we didn't have that data uh, prior to the approval, um, and the FDA in in one moment in time granted denosumab marketing authorization for this indication. Why don't you talk a little bit about the clinical trial that supports the justification of denosumab? Yeah, so the clinical trial that led to the approval of denosumab in this space is is called the 482 trial. It was published in Lancet Oncology mm-hmm. in early 2018, uh, Dr. Rajay from MGH is the first author. So mm-hmm. this was a large study, 1,700 patients or so, took patients with myeloma who at least had one bone lesion and who had creatinine clearance more than 30 uh, and randomized participants to zoledronic acid or denosumab. Mm-hmm. Uh, off note, this was a non-inferiority trial, mm-hmm. uh, not a superiority trial, mm-hmm. with the margin of non-inferiority, the upper limit being 1.28. Mm-hmm. Uh, the primary endpoint was the time to first skeletal-related event while on the study. Uh, And overall, the denosumab was found to be non-inferior with the approximate time to SRE in in both arms being approximately 23 to 24 months. Mm, I see. Okay, so some interesting things to unpack here. Uh, You're telling me you have a drug that costs 50 to 70 times as much, but it has the luxury of not having to go in the IV. But to be fair, many of these patients already have an IV because they're getting myeloma therapies, and those often require an IV. But this is a sub-Q drug, so it has one purported advantage, but it costs 50 to 70 times as much. And we're going to test it in a non-inferiority study, and we're going to have an upper bound margin of 1.28, which means it could be up to 20% worse than zolindronic acid. It has a pretty high upper bound. There's an old joke about non-inferiority trials, which is you got to pick a margin that's very, very large. It's just like parallel parking. You want to parallel park your car in a space big enough to fit a school bus. It makes it a lot easier to parallel park. And similarly with margins in non-inferiority studies, if you pick a big margin, you're going to be non-inferior. I'm non-inferior to Michael Jordan in basketball when you pick the right margin. But if you pick a tight margin, then I obviously am terrible. I'm not as good as Michael Jordan. So that's good to know. And what you're saying is this trial indeed found non-inferiority. And you make this other excellent point, which is that this is a drug for which the the unmet medical need was people with impaired GFR. 
you know, you stated at the outset, that's those are the population and people in whom you're thinking zoledronic acid may be unsafe or risky or dangerous or unable to administer. But this is a trial that excluded those patients from the study. So we really don't have good information for denosumab in people with GFR less than 30. Fair to say? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Okay, so this is the study. It came out. We can criticize it. I probably would. Uh, but for better or worse, it led to the registration of this study. And you're saying that what do doctors, providers do in response um, to knowing that denosumab is an option? Uh, what do they do before denosumab was an option? I guess they could have given denosumab. It could be prescribed off-label. And what do they do after denosumab is an option, FDA-approved option, so it will be reimbursed by Medicare by, by law? So what do they do in response? So that's what your paper looked at. Yep. And just one more point before yeah. we dive into the results yeah. is, you know, we have cost-effective analysis. And I think one of the first points we discussed was how expensive denosumab is in, is in comparison to zoledronic acid. But there's a couple of other features that perhaps uh, indicate that it may not be the preferred option for all patients. Uh, so most patients with myeloma, uh, once they have stable disease, can come off uh, bone-modifying agents. Mm -hmm. uh, so if someone, say, presents with newly diagnosed myeloma, is started on a dual or triplet agent therapy for myeloma mm -hmm. and starts on monthly zoledronic acid, once they start to have stable disease, we can perhaps de-escalate the zoledronic acid to every three months. Mm -hmm. And if the patient has stable disease, can perhaps even stop the bone-modifying agent at two years. Mm -hmm. However, this is not true for denosumab. Mm -hmm. Denosumab has to be given monthly. Um, and has this reversible mode of action. So there's an, a risk of rebound fractures uh, on abruptly discontinuing the drug. So if someone is truly getting denosumab for myeloma, we may potentially be subjecting them to this drug for life. Hmm. Uh, that's an excellent point. So zolindronic acid uh, through uh, the way in which it incorporates into bone exerts a continual anti-osteoclastic inhibitory function and exerts benefit even long after a patient may be weaned off of it. So in addition to being cheaper, you can wean someone off of it. Whereas denosumab is a uh, reversible anti-osteoclastic signaling pathway inhibitor. And because of that, if you turn it off, it might even backfire. It might even have a whiplash effect. That's, so that's an excellent point. So you have to keep it on forever. So it costs you 50 times as much and you can't turn it. There's no off switch. That's an excellent point. And the other point that I skipped making, but I want to make is that with the non-inferiority bound of 1.28, you still had to enroll 1,700 patients with myeloma. 1,700 patients in a phase three clinical trial in myeloma, that's huge. That's a very costly clinical trial. It was probably going to be 20, 30 million in this trial, maybe even more. And they're spending 30 million on this trial because they're running a non-inferiority study. If they ran a superiority trial, well, they would have lost, of course. They probably knew that going into it, but they wouldn't have needed so many people. They could have run the right trial, which is what I would have wanted to see, which is take people with impaired GFR who are Zometa ineligible, randomize them to denosumab or placebo, and follow them for a reduction in SRE. Um, and then you'd get away with a much smaller sample size, and you'd actually fit the unmet medical need. Not the the unmet medical need isn't people who who could take Zometa but want a drug that's seventy times as much. That's not really an unmet medical need out there. Okay, so that's a little bit of background. Okay, now are we ready to jump into the main finding of your of your research letter? Absolutely. So so coming to the results, so we we looked at the percentage of denosumab doses as the total number of bone modifying agent doses. Uh, in the pre-approval and the post-approval period. And in the pre-approval period, because it was likely not reimbursed, uh, 
the percentage of denosumab doses was 0.1% or 1 in 1,000. And not surprisingly, in the post-approval period in March 2019, which was the last part of our study, the the percentage use had jumped to 38.1%, almost 40%. So we see this very, very rapid adoption of of denosumab in all comers with multiple myeloma. We also wanted to explore if use differed by if patients had ever had kidney dysfunction. So we used 60 ICD codes to uh, divide patients or classify patients into ever history of kidney dysfunction or never history of kidney dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we would hope to see that the use primarily went up in patients who might have had kidney dysfunction. Um, But disappointingly, we found that use actually increased more relative to the pre-approval period in the patients who had never had kidney dysfunction. So the adjusted incidence rate ratios were 36 in in, in post-approval versus pre-approval in the patients who had never had kidney dysfunction and 18 in the patients who had ever had kidney dysfunction. Boy, okay, this is a fascinating thing you found. You know, it reminds me a little bit of ruxolitinib. We have ruxolitinib for JAK2 myeloproliferative disorders, uh, and now we have fedratinib. And people on online are saying, well, fedratinib is great to have because what do you do when ruxolitinib stops working? But the fedratinib approval is not for people in whom ruxolitinib stops working. It's as competitor to ruxolitinib. And here what you're showing is people aren't using denosumab. They are using it more in people you cannot use zolindronic acid, but they're even using it more in people you can use zolindronic acid. And why? And they're using it a lot more. You're saying it goes from half of 1% to nearly 40% of people. And actually, you mentioned in your paper that it's $24,000 more per person per year. But I'm wondering what the cumulative difference in healthcare spending is just in this cohort. Maybe it's on the order of, is it $100 million or $200 million? I'm kind of just kind of curious. Yeah, we, we don't have that number, yeah. uh, but but I can tell you that the you know this was a very very large analysis just in Medicare patients. Yeah. So this was uh, our Medicare beneficiaries and fifteen thousand patients or a hundred thousand doses of bone modifying agents. So wow. I would not be surprised if the economic ramifications are that big. And that is just sobering for a drug that comes to market based on a non-inferiority study, of which the only putative convenience is it's being sub-Q. But I I really want to stress, that is not really a convenience if the patient already has to have an IV placed for multiple other anti-myeloma therapies, which they may be requiring, or fluids or whatever. Um, They may already have the IV, in which case, you know, if you already have an IV, I would prefer to get more IV medicine than another prick on the other arm. I mean, that's, that's just me. Um, and and and, yeah. and on that, Vinay, the the idea for this trial actually came from uh, a patient with prostate cancer who I follow in clinic, mm. and this is a gentleman with metastatic castrate resistant prostate yep. cancer who uh, lives a few hours away from our cancer center, and uh, has to come in for any infusions or therapy that he has to receive. He is doing fairly well on abiraterone, yeah, uh, and comes in every three months for his ADT shot, yeah, and. You know, I inherited this patient from from one of my senior colleagues, yeah. and this patient commented to me in clinic that, "Hey, I come see you every three months, and I come take my ADT shot every three months, but I'm having to come in every month for my denosumab shot." And that actually gave me the idea that, uh, you know, not only might this therapy be more expensive, but it may be causing patients to to come seek healthcare when 
They have much better things to do in life, like stay on their own farm and manage their cattle like my patient. Oh, that's a, that's just such a poignant story. And it really hits the nail on the head. Because if he were on Zilmeda, this is another place in medicine, castrate resistant not castrate sensitive, but castrate resistant prostate cancer in which the use of bone modifying agents has been associated with improvements in SRE. And, and you have another situation very analogous to myeloma. And he potentially could have been on Zometa Q three months. And so he'd come to your office and get an IV placed and get the treatment. But then he'd get two times. He wouldn't have to drive all the way to Hopkins. That's ah, excellent. So there you're, you're pointing out that even though it's sub-Q and it may have spared him the IV, he's had the additional imposition and burden of having to come all this way. That is an excellent point. And, and that's something that, you know, I think is so easily lost when one looks at from this 30,000 foot view of trials. That's an excellent point. So um, I guess, were you surprised when you saw this result? I would be lying if I say that I was. Ah, I see. You, you, you have seen enough in healthcare that you know people will follow the incentives. I think I'm I'm still optimistic. I think there's a couple of things that could be driving this use. You know, we spoke about the subcutaneous versus intravenous route. Uh, a more sort of depressing view is is the rebates and reimbursements to physicians and health practices that could be driving this. And then there's also this purported uh, PFS benefit in the 482 study that led to the denosumab approval. So this was a post-hoc exploratory analysis uh, looking at these 1,700 participants with myeloma who were randomized to receive denosumab or zoledronic acid. And the PFS in, in the denosumab arm was 46 months, whereas it was closer to 35 months in the zoledronic acid arm. So an optimistic view is that perhaps uh, prescribers were looking at this 11-month PFS benefit, which mm -hmm. is which is not very modest. It's it's more than what we often see. And perhaps that's the reason that they also switched to denosumab. Mm -hmm. But that is an implausible benefit. And why, why is it implausible? Well, I think uh, some of the subject matter experts do think that most SREs, if not all, should yeah. count as progression events. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the time to SRE in both arms in this trial was approximately 23, 24 months, whereas the PFS was 46 months and 35 months in the denosumab and zoledronic acid arms, respectively. And so whether most SREs, uh, fractures, need for radiation, spinal cord compression, uh, represent uh, treatment failure or progression, um, I think most events would classify as that. Mm -hmm. And so it's very surprising to see such big differences in time to SRE and time to PFS. And perhaps uh, the PFS should more closely approximate the time to SRE. Yeah. And, and the time to SRE is like superimposable. And the overall survival is superimposable. But the time to progression is somehow different and a very mo and a big benefit. And of course, not the primary endpoint of the study. So I guess I'd say I'm putting a lot of asterisks next to there. It makes me a little bit worried. Um, so I guess I'd say this is an excellent paper, and you are really seeing how do people respond to the FDA drug approval, which mandates reimbursement, which really you know ties the hand of Medicare. Um, how do providers respond to, I would say, equivocal or ambiguous data for a drug product when they do receive the sanction to give it, uh, knowing that the financial incentives are skewed towards giving one product or the other? And I guess what you're showing is that they respond briskly briskly and in large number they're responsive to the incentives in the system i think this is super important work and there are not a lot of people who are doing this work and 
Have you heard the distinction between hard targets and soft targets? Have you heard this? I have not. This is something that I've been banging on on a drum recently on Twitter and uh, got myself in a bit of heat because some people who spend a living and lifetime working on soft targets are not happy with me. Here's what I think is a soft target. You know, it doesn't take much skill or intelligence to say that cupping has no evidence. Taking, putting a crystal on your night shelf is not going to make you live longer. Homeopathy is not going to work. Acupuncture is not going to work. You don't need a lot of skill or talent to point out that these things have no plausible evidence, no plausible basic science, no plausible preclinical rationale. You can say it and make yourself feel good, and you can generate a lot of people interested in saying it, but you're not really advancing anything because it's not that clever to say it. It's obvious. And two, the people who hold those views, they're not very responsive to being told that the evidence suggests it doesn't work. They're often not responsive to evidence, and you really just kind of make something more polarized. I call that a soft target. What's a hard target? A hard target is saying that a new study that purportedly suggests we should treat people with smoldering myeloma with Revlimid has serious flaws. A hard target is the Beacon trial. A hard target is Olaparib in pancreas cancer. When you turn off the Fulfirinox and give Olaparib, a hard target is Denosumab, is exactly what you've done. You are studying a hard target. What I mean by that, it's something within the canon of medicine. It's something that we're doing. We're running up hundreds of millions of dollars, likely, perhaps even more, in spending. We're doing this with societal money. That's different than people what people choose to spend their own money on. We all spend our own money on all sorts of things that others might think are foolish. But when it comes to healthcare, we are compelling by force of law that society subsidize these choices. And these choices really have to make people better off in well-done studies to justify that sort of social contract. It's not easy to do the kind of work you're doing and to identify this. It takes a lot of skill and effort, and there are not a lot of people doing it. We need more people to do this work. So I guess I say this just to come to my, my beat on my drum, which is that we need more people like you to do this kind of super important work. Um, this is work that there's a lot of professional disincentives to do, um, but is vital from a policy standpoint to identify these situations. I, I think what you've shown here is um, more than just one example. This is sort of emblematic of the way in which novel products may uh, generate large uptake in the market, even when they don't offer benefits commensurate with their with their with their price margin. I, I, so I guess I, it's just a kind of roundabout way of complimenting you on your work. Thank you so much. And, and if there's one takeaway that, that I want listeners or, and perhaps people who read the article eventually to have is, is for the frontline clinician and perhaps even patients and patients advocates is that, you know, a new drug approval based on a non-inferiority trial uh, may not be more effective than existing and often cheaper therapy. I think if that's my one-liner to take away is that when a new drug comes to market, just look at that small email that you get from the ASCO update or the FDA or however you digest your information and really look at, at just this non-inferiority versus superiority. And that can sort of sort of be a very low low investment way of starting to figure these things out. I think that's super well said. And I would just say, when a new drug comes to market, the first place you want to go is to see if there's a plenary session podcast on the topic. The second place, <laughs> the second place you want to go is to take that deep dive. But no, you're absolutely right. Non-inferiority should, should ring a bell in your mind, which is, okay, we know this isn't superior. 
It's non-inferior. So are the purported benefits enough to justify the potential loss of efficacy, which is the upper bound of the margin? And the great example, I think, is lenvantinib and hepatocellular carcinoma, where you're like, serafinib, it's not a whole heck of a lot better than best supportive care in the SHARP study. And now we're going to back away from whatever benefit we've achieved with serafinib, which, by the way, in the real world is eroded, to lenvantinib, and much more costly drug that's probably equally intolerable, that has a different side effect profile, but not a great side effect profile, and that's both oral and offers no increased convenience, and that costs more. So what exactly is the benefit there? Uh, and yet, I bet, if you study someday, what has the result of the Lenvantinib non-inferiority study been and the approval of Lenvantinib on market share? Um, I think it might be also sobering. I'm adding... I'm adding that on the list of things to do. <laughs> My list has gotten too long, so I have to, I've had to abandon most things. But so, Dr. Arjun Gupta, thank you so much for taking us through this paper. It's out now in JAMA Oncology. You've got some great co-authors, and you did some great work. It's called Use of Bone-Modifying Agents Among Medicare Beneficiaries with Multiple Myeloma. It's the story of one highly costly drug that came to market through a dubious randomized trial that lacks robust data for the cohort in which we really wish we had data, which is impaired GFR, that is swallowing market share, uh, that is racking up cost, and whether or not we're better off as a result is a big question mark. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.